Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. With me today is Liz Baird. She is the Director of Education here at the museum. And Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So you are the Director of Education here at the Museum of Natural Sciences. What is that? Well, it's the best job in the world. I help the museum influence science education across the state by working with fabulous people. And we provide programs here at the museum and away from the museum for anybody who happens to be here. So from infants through senior citizens. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that you do? Like, what sort of opportunities do you offer infants through seniors? I'll run through sort of the five big groups that we tend to break ourselves into in the education section. We have one group that handles all of our large special events, such as Bug Fest, which is in September and usually averages about 35,000 people in our 12-hour event. Fantastic. We have a group that focuses on early childhood education and runs the Discovery Room, provides opportunities for our youngest visitors also works at the Nature Play Space out at Prairie Ridge. We have a group that focuses on programs that happen here at the museum. So they run our classrooms, our investigate labs, the opportunities on carts. And we have a group that focuses on outreach away from the museum, things like distance learning, teacher education, things that we provide for special needs populations, and a group that focuses on volunteers and interns. So Together, collectively, the 35 or so of us try to impact the state and the country and the rest of the world by improving science education and resources for everyone. You are clearly so passionate about science and sharing science education with others. What first sparked your interest in science? I'm fortunate in that I grew up in a science-loving family. My dad is a nuclear physicist. Wow. My mom was a science teacher. Fantastic. We spent a lot of time outside and exploring the natural world. One of the stories that I like to share is that I, as many kids, would pick up a lot of stuff off the ground and shove it in my pockets. <laughs> we've been hearing that a lot from scientists that we've been speaking with. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a typical thing. Well, my mom got tired of pulling random things out of the laundry after washing my clothes and rocks and plants <laughs> and snail shells would be in the bottom of the washing machine. So she created what she called my Wonder Bowl. And she had a wooden bowl and she wrote on the outside, Liz's Wonder Bowl. And my job was to empty my pockets into my Wonder Bowl every night. And then I could put my clothes in the hamper. But then we would sometimes go through the Wonder Bowl and look and use a field guide to figure out what something was or maybe sort things by size. I also think mom would take stuff that started rotting like <laughs> mushrooms out. <laughs> so I laugh that I still pretty much have Wonder Bowls in my life. If you visit my office and you see my desk or you come to my house, I still have little containers of things that I have picked up out in the field, during my travels, in my backyard, stuff that I'm curious about. I think that is so fantastic. And, and here at the museum, all these exhibits are giant wonder bowls, which we're fortunate enough that you have experts to sort of explain and, and walk people through the process. That is fantastic. So how did you then get into science as a career? I knew science was going to be something that I wanted to do. But like many kids, I had a very limited view of what was available in the world. And I thought I either wanted to be a veterinarian or a doctor because those were the science fields that I knew best. 
And when I got to college, I took all the classes I needed to to pursue one of those interests. But I had a fabulous professor who did a lot of field-based work, and I loved being outside. Um, I sort of ignored that passion for the outdoors, and my first job was actually working in a biochemical research lab, and I was inside all day. It would be good for going to medical school, but it wasn't really where my heart lay. And I was in a volunteer position at a science museum. And the more I thought about how much I enjoyed science education and the world of science, the more I realized I needed to leave the lab and do something more geared towards getting outside. So I was a teacher for 12 years, and I joined the museum staff about 20 years ago. So you followed your passion, and you're able to enjoy coming to work every day. And I I think that's one of my biggest pieces of advice, is to figure out what would you do for fun. And if you can figure out what you really enjoy, then your work is really fun all the time. And what you're doing is so impactful to so many other people, and isn't that a gift? So with your current position, you get to travel a lot. Can you tell us about some of your current research projects that you're working on? Certainly. I feel as if I am in the best position ever because I get to help the researchers in the field as well as uh, learn new stuff myself every single day. And my job is to translate the science work into something that the public or students can understand and follow along with. So recently, we've been doing a lot of work in the deep water canyons off the coast of Maryland and Virginia. These are areas where back a long time ago when the sea level was different, um, they were valleys. And now they have filled in and they are areas of really, really deep water. So they were valleys. There there was no water there, you know, thousands, millions of years ago. And then as the surface of the earth has changed, that water has since filled in. Exactly right. So, you know, it's an easy thing to imagine the sea level sort of rising and flooding these valleys. And what's cool about them is they are really poorly studied. We know that they're there, but they're so deep and so dark that it's more of Uh, understanding that we've got it, but not knowing what's down there. So recently, we've been putting a lot of ROVs, which are remotely operated vehicles, down into the water. And there are people who can steer them from the ship. So it's like having your own little submarine running around under the sea that can take pictures, it can pick up samples, it can send video back. And it is just extraordinary to sit on the deck of the ship and watch what's down below you. Because I would imagine these ROVs go down so deep that it's probably not safe for people. Or do people go inside the ROVs? People don't go inside ROVs. People go inside of submersibles. And I've used submersibles as well. Launching a submersible is exciting. It's a little bit dangerous. It's sort of like going to the moon. It's a lot easier to send an ROV down. And we can send an ROV down for days. You know, we actually left an ROV down. We continued working for 36 hours while it was down. You can't really do that with people. Sure. (laughs) Right. And so you're able to direct these ROVs as sort of this live video game and you sort of lead it to where you need it to go. And that's fantastic. So what are some of the things that you've discovered through this research? Well, one thing I know for sure is that I stink at driving an ROV. (laughs) (laughs) You need to play more video games. I do need to play more (laughs) video games. I think this upcoming generation can probably handle those (laughs) controls much better than I do uh, because you are directing the ROV to go up and down and side to side and backwards and forwards simultaneously. So you can go in a diagonal direction and I'm not very good at doing that. Some of the cool things that we've discovered with the ROV include um, an 
extension of a kind of coral called Lophelia, which is this beautiful, white, gorgeous, branching Lophelia coral. And people didn't think it went that far north on this side of the Atlantic. It hadn't ever been documented. And we actually found it in these deep water canyons where it's so dark and cold and so similar to the places that they're seen over in Europe. We also found the largest methane seep so far discovered in the North Atlantic. Wow. It's, yes, acres and acres and acres of methane mussels. And they, they use chemosynthesis to live off. So I'm, I'm, when I hear methane, I think of a gas that's released. Mm -hmm. And so, but you just mentioned methane mussels. Yes, methane is a gas. It is formed generally by de decomposition of organic material. When it is underwater and it starts to seep up through the ground, it's tiny little bubbles. It's sort of like, you know, effervescence in uh, a bottle of soda when you crack the cap and those tiny little bu bubbles first start coming up. So you look across the area, you can see by the, the lights of the ROV because it's pitch black, and you see tiny little bubbles coming up. Well, there are animals that are adapted to using the methane as their source of energy. And mussels, this special species or couple species of mussels are the ones that tend to colonize those areas first. So they take the methane out of the water and they actually have a bacteria that lives in their guts, in their stomachs, that helps them get the energy from the methane. So as you find mussel shells that are in these random locations, you know something... That they're there's breathing gotta, in the yeah. methane that's seeping up from the ground. Yes, yes. Wow. And, and with the ROV, you know, you're steering it around in the pitch black and you see this random muscle shell that looks like something probably ate it. You know, it's an empty dead shell and you think, oh, there's got to be a seep nearby. So you start using your maps and all the knowledge that you have to steer the ROV and then suddenly in the distance you see, you know, this dark spread of muscles and you get closer and, and it, your whole field of view is nothing but mussels. And that just connects to so many other fields of science, right? The geologists who study the Earth's surface and, mm -hmm. and so the what's causing the methane to seep through. And isn't that fantastic that the research that you're working on and the findings that you are able to report impact so many other areas? Well, it, it's really helping us create a much more accurate picture of this Earth that we all share. And this work will not only help us look at the cool things that are down there, but also places that we really need to preserve and protect. So some places it's great to fish and some places it's great to have uh, energy resources. Other places we need to protect because they're going to help keep the diversity of the world alive. Sure. You founded Take a Child Outside Week. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's a wonderful idea and I'd love to learn more about it. I'd be happy to. I was fortunate to grow up as one of those kids who was told to go outside and play until the streetlights came on. And I realized about 20 years ago that more and more children were being limited in their free play outdoors. Um, they spent more time inside. They had more structured activities outside. Um, their ability to jump on their bike and go explore was being limited. And Richard Louvre is an author, and he wrote a book called The Last Child in the Woods. And as I read this wonderful piece about why children need time outside, why it's important for the way that you learn to solve problems, it's important for your health, it's important for your well-being, I thought, what can I do? What can I do? And Richard Louvre came to Raleigh and was speaking, and I had a chance to host him at the museum. And I was so inspired after he left 
that I, it just ate at me. I couldn't stop thinking about what can the museum do because we are a building, right? And right, and we are indoors, right? And so it's kind of a counterintuitive that we would want to tell people to go outdoors. Uh, but I was walking my dog one beautiful spring night, and as I walked my dog, I could see the glow of television sets through all of the windows and nobody was outside. And it made me think about the national effort called uh, Turn Off the TV Week. Sure. Uh And I thought, what if we had a national go outside week? Yeah. And and I wonder if people would do it. So I, I mulled it over for a little bit and I tried to get some money and, you know, nothing was really happening. And finally, I sent a note to Rich and I said, hey, you know, would you support this idea. And he wrote back and said, it's fabulous. What a great idea. And then he wrote about it in a column that went out, you know, nationally. And suddenly I had all these people saying, we want to be a part of your get outside week. What can we do? So that prompted me to go ahead and formalize it. At that point, you know, I didn't even know what week it was going to be. (laughs) And suddenly people wanted to join us. So it was really the first of what are now many efforts to get children outside. And it has gotten so big, this this movement to get children reconnected with nature has really gained legs in a way that makes me so happy. And I don't, I, it's sort of a weird thing. I would love to not have to have Take a Child Outside Week. I would love to have it become that it just irrelevant. A natural thing. Right. That right. it would be, yeah, that would be just a natural thing. So it's sort of odd to have initiated something that you hope will eventually go away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really what I hope. But isn't that wonderful? And it's just another example of you really believing in something and following it through and making something happen. And and look at the impact it's having and how many other supporters you have for it and the difference that it's making. It is absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, I, and I really attribute it to the support of the museum. Um, uh, it, you don't do anything alone in life. Sure, and sure, absolutely. But, but everything has to start with somebody willing to do something. And I think that that is a great lesson for our listeners and for our students that if you are interested in something or if you want to see a change, Make it happen. You That's know, true. get involved mm-hmm. and and be the person. Was it Gandhi? Be the change you want to see in the world. Uh-huh. And um, so, you know, that's a, a beautiful example of you doing just that with your career and and with this Take a Child Outside Week, and it's just wonderful. So, since this is the walking classroom, this is our final question. I have to ask: Where is your favorite place to walk? I love to walk on the beach. I, it doesn't matter if it's sunny, if it's windy, if it's rainy, if it's dark, if it's cold, if it's warm, there's something about the sound of the waves and the feel of the sand that really helps me focus. I love walking in places that are new because there's a curiosity. I I find myself looking around, but I also love going back to places that are familiar and noticing subtle changes. And there are parks near me that I get out to a lot. I'm getting ready to lead teachers down into the tropics, and I have the privilege of having taken teachers down there for many years. And so I get to see both that being in a new place expression from them, and then for me, that that ability to see changes over time. So I, I would walk anywhere. And just make sure that your eyes are open and just absorbing all of those new sights and sounds and smells around you. Exactly. Wonderful. Look up, look down, look forward, look back. You don't know what you're going to see. That's right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Anytime. Take care. Thanks.